Hi, Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. Podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today I talked to Matt Miller about pioneering movements in Rwanda. The story that brought us to Rwanda starts actually almost 17 years ago. Um, we did our first mission um, experience in Togo. We spent 11 years working among the Kabye people. And we were church planters. We had a vision of planting churches that plant churches and plant churches. Um, and you know, we jumped into that ministry. And um, it was a, a really great experience, but we got to a point where things were not moving in the ways that we had hoped and dreamed. So um, I had a mentor named Sam Shoemaker who um, told me about this guy named David Watson that he had okay. heard speak. And so he, um, he directed me to some early recordings that David did of a training in Sierra Leone that were put up on the internet. So I spent several weeks listening to those recordings. Several of them I listened to as I was driving out to villages, you know, yeah. to do leadership training or church planting. And uh, just really felt like the things that he was sharing addressed some, some deficiencies in our own strategy. Um, sometimes people talk about paradigm shifts. I felt it was less of a paradigm shift and more of uh, meeting us in the middle of what we were trying to do and kind of opening our eyes to some blind spots that we, uh, that we had had. <clears throat> so that kind of began a journey of learning more about DMM principles. At that time, we were what, using... What do you mean by DMM? Yeah, disciple-making movements. Um, at that period, that term had not evolved quite as much. We were still talking a lot about CPM, church planting movements. Okay. So um, I began looking for a way to meet David and to get further training. So we found out that there was going to be a training in Livingston, Zambia in 2008. So I gathered together some of our colleagues and uh, four of us decided to go and participate in that training. So that was kind of our baseline of really understanding what church planting movements are and in particular the stream of church planting movements that, that David Watson um, kind of was, was training and encouraging during that period. Now so, your, your time in Togo sounds like it was a tough assignment in terms of, of seeing fruitfulness. Did that help prepare you for the whole conversation about what needs to be different? It definitely did. We, we came into Togo with a, a people group vision. And, um, you know, we, we started out going to villages and, and preaching and doing church planting. But it became clear pretty quickly that the, the strategies we were using were not going to reach the entire people group. Um, after our first about five years of church planting, we had started around 20 churches we were hoping that all of those churches would multiply and go out and plant churches themselves, but it wasn't happening in the way that we thought it would. So we're really open to new ways of thinking about things and in some ways a little bit disappointed with uh, the results that we've had. Okay. So some of us would have been very pleased with 20 churches, but you, you could see that in relation to the size of the task. Yeah. And our people group was close to a million people. So, 20 mm. churches, just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Mm. So what happened at the training with David? Um, well, we, we were with a, a large group of uh, mostly Southern Africans, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and other places. And um, uh, it was actually an interesting training because there were a lot of fairly conservative, traditionally-minded 
African pastors there. So there was a lot of pushback, uh, a lot of tension. So we, you know, we enjoyed those sessions. I, I can't imagine tension around David Watson. He's a very yeah, uncontroversial sort of guy. He thrives on, uh, on conflict, I think. Yeah, that's his way. So uh, we basically found every moment that we could to be with him and pulled him aside yeah. to, to talk and learn. One thing that I realized about in the middle of that training is that the training that he was giving was not necessarily for us and our role as outside leaders. Uh -huh. um, so I began thinking, you know, how, how can we be a bridge, you know, of these principles, bringing them into the lives of the leaders that we work with kind of, um, as coaches or mentors. Um, so came out of that training with a plan to go back to Togo and try to, to retrain all of the leaders that I worked with. Mm -hmm. in Togo. Right. So I was working at that time with about 24 leaders, um, from, most of these 20 churches that we had started. So I took about six months to take them through a discovery process to discover the core principles of disciple making movements. So we studied passages like Matthew 28, the Great Commission, emphasizing the role of discipleship and teaching to obey. Um, Luke 10, the, the principle of finding people of peace. Um, Deuteronomy 6, you know, the, the shalom living and uh, generational uh, growth of the gospel or of, of obedience to Christ. So we just went through that whole process. And um, at the end of that six months, it was time for our home assignment. We were going to the U.S. for three months. So I challenged the leaders that I worked with, you know, we've learned all of this. So why don't you guys pray and target a village and just start putting into practice what you've learned. And my plan was to come back after that, uh, visit to the states and see who actually put it into practice. Yeah. But when I came back, I found out that of those 20 uh, some leaders, only six actually went out and did what they were trained mm -hmm. to do. So um, my plan for what was going to become our last term in Togo, term of about three years, was to just focus on those leaders mm -hmm. and see how far we could go together. Um, so we learned uh, from that experience that it's really difficult to overcome the way that you start when you're working in movement yeah. or leaders. Um, it, was, it was really difficult for them to make the transition to completely implementing this approach that we were teaching. Yeah. We did find that what they did put into practice made things better, mm -hmm. um, but they, the way I would describe most of those leaders is that they, they aspired to more uh, traditional institutional Christianity. Now, I don't know if that's uh, a result of just the, the context that they were in. It was, we went to villages where there had been no churches before. They'd seen churches in other places, and they liked the idea of having a building and having programs and all of those things. And so they they still tended to move back to that, which made it difficult for them to make some of the choices that would result in multiplication uh, in the churches. At the same time though, I started in a new area that we hadn't been to. It was about two hours away from um, the, the part of Cabier land we had worked in and was kind of able to start from scratch. And the story there was very different. Okay, what happened there? So what happened there, we went to this village, um, I took, a couple of the leaders that I was working with from the other area and a young missionary that I was mentoring. And we just started praying. We visited 
uh, walked through the village, started meeting people, asking God to connect us with person of peace. After a couple of weeks of visits, the chief of the village invited us to stay, and he killed a chicken and gave it to us to eat. So uh, when you study Luke 10, you know, one of the characteristics of a person of peace, they provide for the people who come. So we thought, well, um, and the chicken was great. So one of the things I would do to try to see if people were uh, hungry spiritually is to tell parables. Um, Africans love parables. So I made up a parable. Um, I guess I could tell you too. It's kind of short. Parable of the bicycle. So there's this guy who gets a bicycle and his bicycle has a problem. So he takes it to a repairman. The repairman repairs the bike for him and says, hey, don't worry, you don't have to pay anything at all. This is for free. What the guy didn't know is that while he was repairing the bicycle, he loosened something somewhere else so that the bike would fall into uh, disrepair again. So after a few days, the guy's riding his bike, the bike breaks, and he says, oh, no problem. I've got a great repairman who can fix this for me. So he goes back to the repairman, Pays him to fix his bike. The repairman loosens another bolt. So another week later, the same thing happens again. And there's just this cycle that they're yeah. stuck in. So I asked the, the people in this village, what do you think this parable means? And it is a parable about your life as Kabia people. And so we came back the next week. And what I was looking for is who are the people who remembered the parable and yeah. tried to figure out what it meant. And so we had a discussion and um, this chief... Uh, had called together his brothers, and they talked about the parable and tried to figure out what it was. They didn't get it. The, the point of the parable is it describes the cycle of uh, oppression that African traditional religion brings into people's lives. You know, people sacrifice thinking they have to sacrifice in order to be healed or to have good crops. But in actuality, Satan can only fix the things that he causes himself. So anyway, that, that parable was a way to kind of gauge the spiritual interest and the fact that this chief gathered together his brothers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another sign that we a person of peace. Yeah. Uh, we said, hey, would you guys like to study the Bible? Um, would you like to learn more about the story of God? And we kind of laid some ground rules and said, we'll do this with you, but you've got to bring your whole family. So... If, you're, if your wife and your kids don't come, we're not going to be able to teach. So they agreed, and we came back the next week, and there were about 30 people all gathered together. So this was the chief and three or four of his brothers and all of their wives. Um, there is polygamy in this area. Whatever you think about polygamy, it is good for church growth. Okay. Uh, polygamous family comes to Christ, you've got a lot of people together. So we, we started a discovery Bible study process. I was coaching some of the leaders I had worked with to go through this. And uh, after the fourth week, um, we strategically planned to not be available the next week okay. so that the local themselves had to lead the discovery. So uh, one of the copy of Christians just sat down with them and said, you know, these are the questions that you ask. This is how the process goes. And so from the fourth week, all the way through the end of this scripture series that we used, which was Discovering God, uh, these, these people led their own studies. And uh, once we got to the end of the studies, you know, they decided they wanted to be followers of Christ. There were about 32 people baptized, 11 entire families. Um, and then they quickly transitioned into meeting together on Sundays as a church. 
to this day, no missionary has ever been to that church on a Sunday. So we talk a lot as, uh, as missionaries about passing the baton or, you know, transitioning control. I found the best way to do that is to never be in control from the beginning. So, um, and, and the best way to begin and is begin with a group. Yeah, that's right. And they, they yeah. very quickly um, saw in scripture that they needed to share their faith with others. So they went to another village and, um, we had, uh, I skipped over this part, but we had used uh, literacy and some instruction on real organic, easy fertilizer that Africans can make and the moringa tree, which is this miracle tree that exists in, in Africa. And so they took those things that they had learned as a, an entry into new communities that they wanted to go into. And uh, so within uh, four or five months, they had planted another church using the same process. And so today, this is now seven or so years later, that stream continues to multiply. Um, I haven't been there in about a year and a half, so I don't know how many churches there are now. But compared to the other area that was kind of stuck yes. in these more traditional institutional ways, the, they haven't planted any churches in the last seven years. Um, mm. One of the challenges there is that we're, there are still relational connections between the two groups. So some of the institutional kind of desire crept into this other movement. So it hasn't exploded into this great movement. But that was kind of my laboratory for learning about human principles, putting them into practice, seeing how it works. So it it gave you a taste of what God could do, um, not just in Togo, but then as as you moved, was the next move to Rwanda? Yeah, it was. So there was kind of a parallel process going on um, as we began to learn about DMM. We had actually already received a call to go to Rwanda. Um, this happened back in 2003 after we had been in Togo only three years. The same mentor who shared with us about CPM uh, principles went on a survey trip throughout Africa with some college students and he met up with us in Togo and on that trip he had gone through Rwanda. And he said he woke up every morning just in tears, realizing what had happened in Rwanda and the depth of of the need for transformation in that place. So he shared that with us and with some of my colleagues. And um, we were just drawn into his vision and passion for Rwanda. So he asked us if we would consider going on a survey trip. So um, we ended up doing that in 2005. And um, in some ways, we were a little skeptical. Uh, because we were trained as missionaries. I, I did a, a master's in missions before I went on the field. We were trained to look for unengaged people or people who had very little you know, church planting done among them. And if you look at the statistics, Rwanda is the last place you would go in Africa. Yes. If very churched, isn't it? Yeah, very churched. Um, although my, my personal definition of unreached is changing. I think cultural Christians are one of the largest most resistant unreached people groups in the world yeah. mm-hmm. but is another conversation. Yeah. So anyway, we got to Rwanda, not really expecting uh, to be called there because of those reasons. But uh, as we began meeting people, person after person, independently of one another came to us and said, I believe God is calling your group to be here. Mm-hmm. And uh, even to the point that we would ask them, where do you think we should go? And they all said the same city. The, the city wow. of where we live now. We even, before we got to Rwanda, we, we were on a, a shuttle bus in Nairobi, Kenya, 
our plane had been late and they were taking us to a hotel and the bus took off and then it stopped and this lady got on the bus and um, we asked her, yeah, who are you? She said, I'm a missionary from Rwanda. And uh, we asked her name. She said, my name is Michelle. Uh, oh, I can't remember her last name. Anyway, it was a lady who someone had told us to find in Rwanda. Oh, really? We weren't yeah. even in, this, in the country of Rwanda yet. And this lady we were supposed to somehow connect with shows up yeah. on our bus in yeah. the middle of the night in Kenya. She was the first person when we asked, is there a need for missionaries in Rwanda? If so, where? She said, absolutely. Most people are living in the capital city. We need people to move out. And she said, Musanze is the city that has the greatest need. This area where we live is kind of, it was the seedbed of the genocide philosophy okay. that started and moved throughout the rest of Rwanda. So uh, after the experience of being here and talking with so many people, seeing the, the disconnect between church membership and actual discipleship, we just felt a very strong calling to be here. So I had the unusual experience of knowing for seven years that the next place we would go to was Rwanda. Part of that calling was that it wasn't immediate. We, we sensed that God wanted us to finish in Togo yeah. as best we could. And looking back now, I understand that those last seven years in Togo were, were mostly about learning and being equipped with the things that we needed to engage yeah. in Rwanda. Okay. Uh, we did our best to, to implement what we could in Togo, but yeah. um, God was preparing us for what he wanted to do here. And it sounds like he had really planned this preparation out. Absolutely. He making it so clear. I want you in this very center of where you said the, the genocide began and, and sort of moved out from. Yeah, and as we're learning the stories of people who are being drawn into the disciple-making movement here, in many people's lives, there's, there was something special that began happening around 2005, around that time that we were on our, our survey trip. Um, a lot of people began praying for Rwanda. That was around the 10-year anniversary of the genocide. And uh, that was kind of when Rwanda came into the consciousness of people in the West because several movies were, were made. And, you know, Westerners, we don't know that something happens until they make a movie about it. Yeah. But uh, 2004 is when Hotel Rwanda came out. Mm. So a lot of people yeah. started praying. And uh, God started planting seeds yeah. in the lives of really key leaders around that time that took several years to develop. And, and now they're uh, doing amazing things here in Rwanda. You know, people have said to me, the gospel doesn't really make an impact because Rwanda was Christian. You know, it's very high percentage. Um, what's, what's your understanding of, of uh, well, what's your response to someone who says that? Well, I, my normal response is, which gospel are you talking mm. about? And which Christianity are you talking about? Mm. Yeah, they, they have a point that the, the kind of Christianity that developed in Rwanda did not go deep enough to even orient people more towards Christ than towards their ethnic or national identity. And um, we spent a lot of time thinking about why that happened. Mm. There are two major kind of worldview um, issues that I think created a space in Rwanda that genocide was able to fill. One of those was the separation of sacred and secular so that people had their religious life that wasn't necessarily connected to the rest of their life. And right along with that is the connect or the disconnect between uh, clergy and laity, 
so that, you know, serious Bible study, serious kind of discipleship is the realm of professional pastors and missionaries. And, uh, you know, everybody else isn't part of that. Another disconnect that we found is the almost a spiritualization of the gospel in that the gospel is about escaping from the earth and going away to heaven someday without much impact on daily life now. It's totally against what Jesus taught. Jesus' gospel is very much rooted in this earth and in the community that he was a part of and seeing it transform. But when you disconnect the gospel from that, and it's just about, you know, this this sin transaction that gets you a ticket to heaven, then it doesn't really impact daily life. So those things together cause Christianity to be something that people engaged in on Sunday or Saturday, depending on their, their denomination. And wasn't really a big part of their, of their core identity. Yes. So um, when did you arrive? It was around 2012? Yeah, so our, our crew that was in Togo together, we were in a couple of different cities. Um, we came in two waves. One group, their work uh, was already about 15 years along, so they were ready to disengage, and they arrived in 2008. And um, our, our family and another couple of families arrived in 2012. Yeah. Um, and uh, when we arrived, we, we were in for a lot of surprises. Rwanda is unique in Africa in many ways. Um, probably the best example is that in Togo, for the 11 years that we were there, we had tourist visas the whole time. They mm-hmm. never asked to even do work permits. They would just yeah. keep extending our visas. So very little uh, follow-up on our activities. We were able to just live very simply in Rwanda. Partly because of the, the results of the genocide, they are very cautious about who is allowed to be in the country. You know, one of the horrible realities of the genocide is that tens of thousands of people were killed in church buildings. Some of them killed by their own pastors. There, there's a story of a priest who bulldozed his cathedral on top of his parishioners during the genocide. So you can imagine the distrust that yeah. the, the current government that came in and stopped the genocide yeah. would have religious institutions and missionaries. So um, to stay in Rwanda, you have to prove that you're doing something that a Rwandan couldn't do. And uh, you have to do something that the government sees as a contribution to the development of the country. So when we arrived, um, our our colleagues who came first in 2008 um, spent a lot of time interviewing and asking questions. And they determined that the best thing to do is to start a local NGO, non-government organization, that would um, engage in several different development activities with discipleship as the core. So Africa Transformation Network began um, in, in that period, 2008, 2009. Uh, initially, it was a missionary-led organization. It's transitioned now to being Rwandan-led. Um, and it's provided a wonderful platform to both serve and show love to people of Rwanda, but also to, to have a legitimate presence in the country from which we can do training and, and other things. Um, so that, that group began in Kigali. Um, when we came, we had this clear calling from Musanze in the north. So we've actually never lived in Kigali. We began as uh, volunteers with Africa Transformation Network. Um, moved up to the city that we live in now. But after about a, v- about a year of being here, um, some of our Rwandan friends said, your volunteer status working with this local NGO uh, 
was probably a good way to start, but people are beginning to ask questions about why you're really here. And uh, they said, if you want to stay for a long time, you may need to think about doing something else. Mm -hmm. So one of our closest Rwandan friends suggested that we take our informal missionary kids school and turn it into an international school. So the last three years or so we've been on that journey. We've, uh, we've started an international school. We registered it as a social business. So it's, it's actually a, a business in Rwanda and we are now investors in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. We started 17 kids um, three years ago. We have about 50 now and uh, just bought land and we'll be building the school soon. So again, it's, uh, it's providing a, a legitimate platform for us to be in the community, to connect with people here. Um, we have a seat at the, at the table of our city. You know, we're a part of the city now. Uh, we were able to build a house um, that's even further rooting us into this place. So yeah, that's, that's our, been our journey of, of getting established in Rwanda. And along the way, um, how have you taken what you began to learn in Togo and, and, and brought it into your experience in Rwanda? Yeah, so the, the kind of the, the initial attempts to catalyze a disciple-making movement in Rwanda began in 2009. David Watson came and we hosted a, a CPM training. Um, we had, I don't know, probably 80 people who were there. Um, and then he did a follow-up training with, with our team. Um, and it was at that training that he challenged us to have a vision for the entire nation of Rwanda. Mm. At that time, there were two different teams, one that was kind of based in Kigali and one that was looking at going north. And um, we assumed that we would just have a more traditional ministry where those teams would work in the areas that, that they live and that we would do kind of the ground of establishing movement in Rwanda. What we didn't realize was that God had already been at, been at work in Rwanda. He had already started the movement. And so our role had to shift quite a bit. And one of the big shifts we had to make as an organization as Africa Transformation Network was realizing that to reach Rwanda did not mean that ATN was going to reach Rwanda. The, it's 11 million people. No one organization can ever reach 11 million people. So we had to go about the process of, of kind of taking our organization out of the vision to make room for other organizations and other people to feel comfortable coming in. So when I came in in 2012, I was asked to lead um, an organization or not really an organization, an informal grouping of DMM practitioners that we called the DMM coordination team. Mm -hmm. At the time that I was a part of that uh, or came into that, most of the people on that coordination team were also a part of Africa Transformation Network. So one of the things we recognize really quickly is that we need to find other partners if a movement is truly going to be established. Mm. So we began praying that God would connect us with people, um, specifically praying for dissatisfied people, frustrated people, you know, people who know that there's something else out there, but don't exactly know what it is. And uh, God started making these connections. And what are they expats? Are they missionaries? Are they locals or mixed? Um, most, mostly Rwandans um, right. or Africans, um, yeah. not, not all Rwandans. But one of the most significant connections that was made happened um, about five months after I moved to Rwanda. 
I was actually in Burundi mm -hmm. uh, attending another Christian conference. And uh, after that conference, I was trying to connect with someone and he had other visitors in his house, so I couldn't stay with them. So he took us to this guest house in the middle of Bujumbura, totally unplanned uh, by us. So we, we get to this guest house, go to the room, and on the way out, for some reason, I decided to take a shortcut through this conference hall instead of walking the normal way out of the hotel. When I walked into the conference hall, I looked on the walls, and there were those white flipboard papers filled with DMM principles. Okay. You know, it said how to find the person of peace and, you know, Matthew 28, just lining the walls yeah. and my broad, my, my jaw just dropped. So I went to the reception and said, who rented this room? Can you, can you tell me who's doing this? So I got a phone number and the phone number of someone else. So that being arrived by this time. Yeah, this was in the evening. So the, the conference had ended for that day and, and they were gone. They were going to come back the next day. Well, it turns out that the guy who organized this conference was a Rwandan. Okay. He, had, he had attended a training in Kenya um, maybe a year or so earlier that was led by Isla Tase and a guy named Roger Thalman who works with Appleseed oh, Ministry. Yeah, I know Roger. Yeah. Um, he, he had been on a journey of um, kind of coming out of traditional church. He was a Pentecostal church pastor and just got dis dissatisfied. You know, after years of ministry, he had about 80 people, and most of those people were from other churches. And he said, this is not what we were sent to do. We we're sent to reach the lost. And so he got connected with some, some house church people, and through that, it, with CPM training, and he, he started. So God miraculously put us together, and he was the, the first, um, really, the first person who had success with DMM in Rwanda. Okay. So he was, he was the case study that answered everyone who, you know, everywhere you go, people say, yeah, that happened there, but it can't yes. happen at my place. Yeah. Well, Justin had, had started and it was happening. And that kind of energized some of our other Rwandan friends who are part of this coordination team to see that, you know, this can really work in our context. So, um, I'll tell you a little bit about Justin's story. I mentioned that he was a traditional church pastor, came out of that, went into DMM training. When he got back to Rwanda, he decided to start praying in his community that God would connect him to people of peace. So after um, a few weeks, he found a night guardsman and a bicycle taxi driver. And he shared the gospel with them and with their families. Um, did discovery Bible study with them, and those two families came to Christ. So those guys then he he trained to go and find other people. And that that's probably one of the more significant kind of uh, essential points when you're trying to start a movement. Yes. When you reach a few people, are you going to invest in them and equip them to reach others? Or are you going yeah. to go out more and more families? So Justin just intuitively and probably through his training knew he needed to invest in those two families and help them reach others. So over the course of about a year and a half, those two families grew into 80 house churches throughout several regions of Rwanda. And um, that was about at the point that Justin's movement had developed when we met him and, and brought him into this uh, DMM connecting team. So, um, so your role, has changed somewhat since you're in Togo. You were very much, you're the pioneer. It was then radiating out. It That's sounds right. like um, 
your influence is broadening and that you're building coalitions of Rwandans and other workers who um, will do what you've been doing. Um, and is that, is that right, that it sort of it took a step to another level when you moved yeah, to Rwanda? It's a very, a very different role. Um, and I, I've reflected on that role shift. There, there are parts of it that have been really difficult. Um, it's been a journey of humility in a lot of ways. Actually, one of, one of my reservations in even doing this interview is yeah. I do not want anyone to think that what is happening in Rwanda yeah. has happened because of me. Mm. Not at all. God started this. Yeah. You know, it was well on its way. We, we thought yeah. we were coming to start a movement in Rwanda, but we got there and realized that God had already started it. Wow. But what he has been able to use me and some of my colleagues um, effectively is to create a roundtable of DMM practitioners in Rwanda who didn't know about each other, might have felt like they were alone, mm. and we've been able to bring them together. Um, in, in this DMM, we now call it the DMM connecting team because yeah. we felt, the Rwandans felt like coordinating sounded like too much control. Yeah. So DMM connecting team, we divested ourselves of all organizational connection. So when I'm sitting at this round table with these leaders, I don't represent ATN. Yeah. I come from a Church of Christ background in the States. I don't represent the Church of Christ. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just a disciple of Jesus who wants to help people know each other and connect with each other. And I think as outsiders, we were able to call that group together in a way that an insider couldn't because there would have been questions, you know, is this person trying to control us or, you know, bring us into yeah. their organization? So we, we created this flat round table and um, provided some of these uh, new practitioners who were trying new things. They're innovators. Yes. You know, innovators are often persecuted by everyone around them, people within the existing church. So they were so excited to learn that there were other people who thought in similar ways, other people trying to do the same things. So it's become just this beautiful community of practitioners. Uh, so they meet so for years since Togo, God's had you on this journey. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you've come to Rwanda and you discover other people that you're, you're actually stepping into something he's already doing. That's right. But you find your contribution as a catalyst as, a, as an encouragement, a mentor, a connector, um, somebody who believes in the Rwandans who, who are making this happen. Yeah. And you know, one, of the, one of the key tools in building the, those relationships has been prayer. Mm -hmm. um, the way that I got to know Justin and some of the other leaders was to just call them up every week or two and say, hey, what's going on? How can I pray for you? And um, they, I think they found that to be very valuable. Again, I don't want to misrepresent things. That's a challenge for me. There have been seasons where I'm not as good at doing that and other seasons where I'm, I am good at doing that. But what I'm learning from my Rwandan and African brothers and sisters is that what they want from us as outsiders is real relationship and friendship. Yeah. What they don't want is organizational control. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. They don't want... To, one of them said, you know, the reason why, uh, I don't know if you've heard of David Hunt. He was a, a part of catalyzing one of the first disciple-making movements in East Africa. He said, Dave Hunt never made me feel like his trophy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I heard that. It, yeah. it really it convicted me in some ways. It made me think how, you know, when I look back at Togo where I was more active in ministry, how often did I 
make reports about what was happening to actually just kind of boost my own ego and say, hey, look what I did. Yeah. So it's been really great because God called us into a role in Rwanda where all of that has been stripped away. Mm. You know, when, I, when I send my reports back to my sending church, um, I can't send the kind of statistics that I used to send. Because if I honestly answer the question, how many churches have you planted? How yeah. many people have you baptized? The answer is zero. Mm. Because my role here is not to do that. My role is to encourage and equip and be friends to Rwandan leaders. And what they're doing is so much, so much greater. It's already exploded beyond anything that we saw happen in Togo. But I can't draw direct lines to it. I can't claim it as best like I did. Well, what, what has sort of risen out of the ashes of Rwanda? What and, and it might be helpful if you've got some idea of, you know, the towns or the cities or the villages that have been touched, the churches that have been started. What, what does it look like? Well, so the, the, this is a good time to talk about that. It's one thing the DMM Connecting Team does. Every year we get together in January for uh, a weekend retreat. And it's a time where we celebrate what God has done in the previous year. We look forward to the next year in ways that we can support each other and encourage each other. So we've got some fresh information on what's been going on. Um, the genesis of, of movement in Rwanda, um, we kind of trace back to the year 2010. Mm-hmm. We were training 2009. Um, so 2010 to 2011, there were about 80 uh, house churches that were planted. Um, in 2000. 13 that had doubled to about 180 or 160. So at the most recent gathering, there are now 425 churches that have been planted and there are somewhere around 400 ongoing discovery Bible studies in Rwanda. And that represents the work of seven or eight different networks who are working in different places and among different people groups or different segments of society, but who come together as a part of this collaborative group to encourage one another. And are you seeing um, generations of, you know, groups and churches starting new churches? The, the, the oldest network is Justin's network, and he has traced in parts of his network 13 generations wow. of disciples who've made disciples who've made disciples. Wow. They're really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. Some of the others who started a little bit after Justin are just moving into that, that fourth generation uh, kind of threshold of movement. Yeah. And what, what are your hopes for the, the future? What are you trusting God for in this next phase? Well, th- there's a passage of Scripture that um, really is motivating me a lot. Um, and it comes from an unusual place, not a place that we usually go to to talk about movement. But it's actually in Genesis chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 2, where God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Mm-hmm. But uh, he also tells Adam and Eve to care for and keep the garden. And if you put those two commands, mm. Garden of Eden, and multiplying and filling yeah. the earth, it suggests that God's plan was to fill the entire earth with the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So Adam and Eve obeyed one of the commands. They filled the earth, but they didn't guard that, that special place, and yes. it did not multiply with this movement of populating the earth. Mm. What that does for me is it, it's almost a warning um, it's not just about multiplication. You can mm. multiply something that doesn't necessarily multiply God's mission or God's plan. 
Yeah. So the questions that I'm asking right now, you know, we, we've seen a movement begin. Um, churches are starting to be planted, mm. but what is being multiplied? Rwanda, where we are right now, is the case study for multiplication. Yes. There were churches everywhere in Rwanda, and the genocide mm. still happened. Yeah. So if just starting a whole bunch of churches again that don't have some difference about them, what are we really doing? Yeah. So the questions that we're asking is what what does deep community transformation mm. look like? Mm. How can new churches, these new communities that are started, really make a difference in in the overall long-term story of Rwanda? We want to see deep, deep transformation, not just another bunch of churches that are out there doing nothing. Wonderful. Matt, we got it. All right. Well done.